For our text today, we will read from the second chapter of the letter of St. Paul to the church at Rome, beginning with verse 25. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not the uncircumcision which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. We were talking last time about the meaning of circumcision in this Roman letter. And I want to continue that explanation today. And in order to do that, I will overlap just a bit from our last discussion to pick up the trail. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. If you abide by the spirit of truth that the law teaches, then your religious show will have meaning. It will be a testimony to the world and it will direct attention to your life where men can see the living reality of the things you profess to believe in in your religion. But if you don't do those things in your life, then your religion will be a false religion. It will be a hypocritical thing. Your profession will mock God, and it will be the very occasion that the world will use to condemn the faith. Professing to believe something that you do not in fact live up to and believe is a negative thing. Therefore, if the the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision. If a man has no religious tradition or liturgy, but he understands the law of God and he keeps it in his heart, will not this conscription to God's law project to the world the real testimony of truth that the whole canon is supposed to represent? His fidelity, his obedience, his dedication to God's law, in other words, becomes his religion. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision thus transgress the law? Is it not clear that the life of this individual who understands the law of God and lives in obedience to it will sit in judgment of you who go through the ritual of tradition and the liturgy of religion, but who do not live by the truth that it is supposed to represent. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and 
Circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly. He is a Jew which is one inwardly. What can this mean? Well, I wonder if you knew what the biblical origin of the term Jew is. I wonder if you know what a Jew is from the biblical point of view. The story is in 1 Kings chapters 11 through 13, and it's repeated more or less in 2 Chronicles chapter 11 through 13. Solomon was a corrupt king. Near the end of his life, he reinstituted some terrible practices. He erected temples to pagan gods, and worst of all, to the god Moloch, which was the most deplorable and abominable idolatry that Israel ever got involved with. As a part of this religious ritual, they were actually taking their little children and placing them in the arms of this red-hot idol where they were burned as human sacrifices. God said that this was the crowning blow as far as Solomon was concerned. As a consequence, God would take the kingdom away from him. Now in Solomon's court, there was a young man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was not a son of Solomon. He was the son of Nebat and Ephrathite and his wife Zeruah, who was a servant of Solomon. But Jeroboam was known as a devout and sincere man who was vexed with the idolatry and the unfaithfulness of his master. One day, Jeroboam was out in the field. He'd just gotten a new garment, the Bible says, and he was out there walking around to be seen in it, I guess, or whatever reason he was out there. Ahijah, the Shilonite, came out of the Tulis and grabbed Jeroboam by the garment and tore his new garment in 12 pieces. The old prophet told Jeroboam that in this way, God was going to rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and his house because Solomon had displeased God. Ahijah gave Jeroboam ten pieces of the torn garment and said that this meant that God was going to give him ten tribes out of Israel and that two would remain with Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, to whom the kingdom of Israel would naturally fall. Now somehow Solomon found out about this prophecy, and so he went about to kill Jeroboam, who fled to Egypt and took asylum with Shishak, the king of Egypt. Jeroboam stayed there until Solomon had died and Rehoboam was seated as king. When Rehoboam took over, the people of Israel came up to him and said that they needed some relief from the yoke that Solomon in his old age had put on them. The old king had grown senile, cynical, and cantankerous. He taxed the people to death, and he treated them very coldly and cruelly. They petitioned Rehoboam to change this. Rehoboam sought the counsel of the old men who agreed with the people and recommended that the matter be rectified. But then Rehoboam counseled with the young men. Now, these were cronies that he had grown up with. Rehoboam appointed some of them as prophets. Later on, he corrupted himself further by appointing some of them as priests against the specific and clear instructions of the law. 
These young men advised him not to give the people anything or to listen to their cries. They advised him to be hard, to establish his authority, and to take firm charge of the situation and show those people who was boss. They advised him to send Adoram to the people and tell them that Rehoboam's little finger was thicker than his father's thigh. Now, this was more than a threat to increase the tyranny and the oppression of Israel. It was actually a very degrading and dirty little phrase, really, which we won't go into. Adoram went to the people with this smart aleck little speech, which made them so furious that they stoned him, and they rebelled against Rehoboam. Rehoboam fled back to Jerusalem for refuge and to try to come up with a plan as to what he could do about this rebellion. Meanwhile, the people took Jeroboam and made him king over Israel, leaving Rehoboam as the king of Judah, which consisted of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. When Rehoboam heard it, he went to Jerusalem and gathered up 180,000 of the crack troops of the kingdom of Judah and Benjamin who had stayed with him, and the other ten, of course, had rebelled. Now with these, he would put down the rebellion and get the ten tribes back. But while they were plotting their military strategy, Shemaiah, a man of God, appeared on the scene with a message from the Lord. Rehoboam was not to fight to reunite Israel and Judah into one kingdom again. The Israelites were not to fight against their blood brothers. Go back to your homes, Shemaiah said on God's behalf, because this thing is of me, that is of God. This is in 1 Kings chapter 12. Verses 22 and 24. There's no opportunity here to go into the testimony of the covenant of promise and its superiority over the covenant to the nation, although it's graphically pictured here. But the simple point was that God wanted this separation to stand and there was to be no reunion. Well, the kingdom of Israel went bad immediately. Jeroboam, now that he was king, turned from faith in God and began to act out of fear of the people for fear that Israel would return to Rehoboam. In order to prevent this from happening, he did the very thing for which he criticized Solomon. He made gods of gold and coerced the people to sin. He told them that it was too much for them to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship. He pointed to the golden calves, reminded them that Aaron had made golden Elohims in the wilderness, and said, Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. This is in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 through 28. Well, God had decreed that there would be a kingdom of Judah and a light in Jerusalem in the house of David. This was out of respect for David and the ancients and for no other reason. It was not because Judah was righteous. In fact, the kingdom of Judah got so corrupt in the days of Zedekiah that God took it away completely. Remove the diadem, he said, and take off the crown. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. This whole savory mess that was. And it shall be no more. In other words, there isn't going to be any more king over my people until he shall come whose right it is. This was the Messiah or the Christ who is the only one who ever had the right to rule. And I will give it to him. This is in Ezekiel chapter 21, 
verses 26 and 27. Well, that is an enormously significant scripture in biblical prophecy, although we simply can't go into it now. But during this period from Jeroboam until the days of Zedekiah, there continued to be a kingdom of Judah over which the sons of David continued to reign. By contrast to Israel, Judah remained close to the Lord. The term Judah, which was later shortened to Jew in the English, represented those who remained faithful to God when others had rebelled. The Pharisees told Jesus that they were of Judah, or they were Jews. This was supposed to mean that they were the ones who had continued to walk with God and the ones whom God had favored because of their heritage and tradition. It was a term that had the same impact in the religious world then as fundamental or conservative does today. But over the time, the emphasis was no longer on the fact that they were the ones who remained faithful, but that they were Judah or Jews, and that they had the history and the tradition of being the closest to God. It was in this heritage, instead of the truth and the God of the truth, that they now placed their confidence. In the Gentile world, to the Romans and others, the term Jew is applied to all religious men who seek to please God and manifest obedience to God through their religious tradition and liturgy. And it's also applied in the same true sense to all men who obey God from the heart and with true understanding. Thus St. Paul tells them that the man is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Now remember that these words were coming from the greatest Jewish zealot of them all. It was not his nature to tell Romans that they were more Jews in the legitimate sense than his Israelite countrymen. But truth is truth, and St. Paul was set for the defense of the truth. The true and faithful people of God are those who live by God's laws and not those who pretend as if they live by God's laws by an outward religious show of tradition, whether of speech or liturgy. The true circumcision is not that which is outward in the flesh, not your religious show and traditional practice, but circumcision is that which is inward in the heart. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly. He is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter. He is the one who captures the truth and lives by it, and not the one who goes by the literalistic, tedious, and legalistic outward show, reducing the great truths of God to nothing more than a mechanical tradition. This man seeks to be praised of God. He does not seek the praises of men. Well, if the Jews as a nation were not going to accept the Messiah, and if the rejection by that nation resulted in the voiding of the old covenant, which it did, 
and the establishing of the new covenant, that superior operation which was greater in glory and encompassed all nations of earth instead of just the nation of the Jews, then wasn't their unbelief really a good thing? And if so, why criticize the Jews for it? Hmm. This follows the reasoning of the blasphemer Thomas Paine, who argued that if the most glorious thing that ever happened in this world was the death of Christ, and if Judas was the one who instigated the death of Christ by betraying him, then Judas ought to be the hero of Christianity instead of the goat. The same logic goes into the question about the unbelief of national Israel. If in the sovereignty of God it was planned that the nation of Israel would reject their Messiah so that the covenant of promise could come to all the world, then how could this have been anything but right? Why should there be any criticism of Israel? And why should any glory of being an Israelite remain now that the purpose has been realized? St. Paul rejects such thinking. The fact that God is great enough to make something good out of this situation in no way brings credit to the nation of Israel for their unbelief and for their rejection. We are never entitled to argue that if bad things result in good situations coming to pass, then the evil thing and the perpetrator of it are to be commended. You know, many of God's people have indulged in this kind of reasoning. Well, I think it was good that I went out and did these inferior things and learned those terrible lessons by experience because something good came from it. I think it must have been my 40 years in the wilderness, so I think it was good that I did that. <laughs> One day we are going to find out that it was never good, never good, that we do wrong. God's grace and the fact that he can bring about something glorious from the evil that we do, notwithstanding, we are never right to claim credit because our wrong was the avenue along which good things came. The very basis of the judgment is that the law of God was violated or that it was kept. That's how the judgment is going to be determined. Now, if the violating of God's law means that we deserve to take credit for having done something good, well, then God could judge no one as being a sinner, and then there would never be a judgment. In his sovereignty, God works everything after the counsels of his own will, and in the final analysis, everything that happened will turn out to the glory of God. But the perpetrator of wrong gets no credit whatsoever. Listen to verse 7. For if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged a sinner? and not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. God would not be able to judge me a sinner, said St. Paul, if it were really true that through my misbehavior the grace of God is caused to abound. Well, there were actually some people saying that this was the net effect of the doctrine of grace that St. Paul was teaching in the Gentile world. Sin causes the grace of God to abound. 
So therefore, sin is good. Now, this is part and parcel of the philosophy of modern theology, too. And it's frightening and dismaying to those who understand the truth about God's grace. The frivolousness with which the modern church views evil, well, there's grace with God, and there's forgiveness with God, because of the gracious things that God does, and because the gracious God forgives. We're under grace, we're not under law, and so we can do as we please, this is evident in many churches and doctrines and even some theologies like Bob George and the People to People movement. In the sixth chapter of this book of Romans, we will go into this subject thoroughly. Because we are under grace, shall we go on sinning? The deceit and the problem with that kind of reasoning will then be exposed. But here the issue is limited to the nation of Israel. The apostle says that nothing good can be credited to them for their unbelief and the rejection of the Messiah. Beyond that, there was no advantage to Israel in terms of being righteous in the sight of God. There were temporal benefits, and they were real. The glory was real, the national privilege was real, and the way in which God used them for good in his plan for the ages was real. It was the rejection of God by the nation of Israel that canceled those benefits out. But there really was a benefit, and there really was glory on that mortal level connected with that nation. So what does this mean then in terms of being righteous or acceptable in the sight of God or in terms of being a value in the sight of God? In verse 9, he phrases the question, what then are we better than they? Now, St. Paul, of course, was a Jew or an Israelite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and he was identifying himself with the nation when he asks, are we Jews better than they, the Gentiles, and his answer is, no, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. He returns to the doctrine established in the first and second chapters to show that man is evil in his heart, that man likes evil companions, and that he only uses religion and sitting in judgment of others to try to put critics off of his trail. But God is not fooled, and this tactic will not succeed. We have proved before, he said. Now one thing we want to be clear about when it comes to God's demands for righteousness in his relationship with man is this. All people, irrespective of their nationality, origin or tradition or religious heritage, all are in the same condition. They are all under sin. Sin. This means they are all under the burden of it. They are all under the guilt of it. They are all under the corruption of it. And they are all under the condemnation of it. St. Paul cites numerous Old Testament scriptures in which God gives his own word on this. When we read them, we need to keep before us that God loves us, 
and that all this is a part of the gospel of grace which can save us if we accept it. Here is how God sees the character of men and what he has to say about it. As it is written, this is chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. No man is right in the sight of God, and no man has understanding. What does this mean? Does it mean that we can't learn to read or to fix the car or how to determine the needs of our children? No, that's not what it means. God is talking about understanding in the larger and more basic sense. He's saying that natural-born, unregenerated man does not understand about life. He espouses the wrong causes. He chooses the wrong friends. He develops the wrong set of values. He puts the wrong things into his body that destroy him. He takes up immoral practices that dissipate his character and that leave him empty and disillusioned and on and on. Natural born man simply does not understand about life. Without the intervention of God into human affairs, natural born man left to himself and his own devices, has no understanding, and he will never find God, and he will never find truth. Next week we will pursue God's less than flattering analysis of the moral and spiritual condition of the human race.